Peter was probably the oldest of the apostles, so he was probably in his 30s. We know he was married, he had a mother-in-law. Um, we know archaeologically they, we've, uh, they, they, they are about 99% sure we actually know where his house was. Um, and that, um, and there's actually a church built over. It looks like a UFO. It's really weird. Um, but uh, but we're we're about 99% sure we know where his house was. Um, so we know an awful lot about Peter, but we know him mostly from the Gospels. And and those of you that have read the Gospels or done some study in the Bible, what do you know about the Apostle Peter? What do you know about Simon Peter? He's a fisherman. All right, he's a fisherman best friend of Jesus. All right, he's one of Jesus's best friends, if not his best friend. He was impetuous. He's impetuous. He, he lets his mouth run before his brain yeah. um, all the time. Sure, not. <laughs> not if he was in a mother-in-law. <laughs> um, what else? What else do we know about Peter? Is Peter his name? Right, his name is Shimon or Simon. And Jesus names him Kephas, or in Hebrew Petros, which means little stone, right, little rock. Um, so Jesus gives him that name, which he carries um, uh, along through his life. What else? His what? brother Andrew was also a disciple. His brother Andrew was also a disciple. What do we know about what he did as one of Jesus' disciples? Anyone know any stories about Peter? Lee, yeah, Lynn knows plenty of stories, but who else? <laughs> uh, he was—he denied Christ during the events of the crucifixion. He denied Christ three times during Christ's trial. All right. What else, Ashley? Yeah. Good. Good call. He yeah. cuts off the ear of the priest's servant in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is uh, arrested. There's something famous that he did. He walked on water. He walked on water. All right. He's a fisherman who walked on water. Think about that for a second. What kind of skill? I mean, a fisherman's going, this is the best thing ever. You know, no waders, no boat. I get the head right out. All right, so he walked on water. There's a lot that goes on with Peter. And, and Peter is, uh, Jesus gives him that name, Peter, um, at Caesarea Philippi, which is, um, at Caesarea Philippi, there's a, a cave, which is called the gates of Hades. It's where they worshipped um, a god named Pan. Um, and uh, Jesus is standing there and he makes a statement to, to him. He says, I will call you. Because Jesus asks Peter, he says, uh, who do men say I am? And they say, well, you think you might be one of the prophets. We think you might be John the Baptist. He says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, I believe you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. And, and Jesus says to Peter, um, you know, blessed are you, son of Jonah. Um, but then he goes, he says, uh, he, call, he says, I will call you Kephas, or Petros, uh, or Little Rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against them. He's standing in front of a place called the gates of Hades, where people worship in the most debauched possible way. And he's saying to Peter, he says, he says I'm calling you the rock, and my church is going to stand against the. It's going to stand against the crash and the wave of the world's destructive behavior, and it is going to stand. And you're going to be a part of that. Now Simon Peter thinks that's absolutely great. The very next thing that Jesus tells him is to get behind me, Satan. So, um, so Peter Peter manages to manages to be both 
a hero and a little bit of comedy relief through the through the course of the Gospels. But the books of First and Second Peter are not written by Peter in his youth and his impetuosity. They're written by Peter in his maturity, as an old man, um, as an as an old fisherman who has gone far, far away from his home of Galilee. In fact, um, we're, we believe, most commentators would agree, although there are a few that disagree, that Peter has traveled all the way across the known world and is now living in the city of Rome, um, what he calls Babylon. Um, and, uh, and Peter has come a long way from being a Galilean Jew with a, a hick accent. Um, in the book of Acts, they actually say, we know you're Galileans by the way you talk. Peter's like, what you talking about, Wilkes? I mean, he, but, but, but he is, that's a reference anybody under the age of 30 is not going to get. Um, but, uh, but he is, he is, he is, he has gone from there to living in the capital of the, the greatest government of his age, of his day. He's living in Rome and he's working in the church there. Um, and through his life, he has journeyed a, and he has seen a lot of things. And, uh, and one of the things that he has seen, and this is extraordinary, um, he has seen who he is in comparison to who everybody else is. Now, I'm not going to belabor this, but I just it's just by way of introduction as we get into this series. You need to understand how Peter writes. Now, in English, when we read an English translation of the Bible, um, it's been pretty much smoothed out because the same crew of translators is translating everything. Um, and so we want the Bible to read like the Bible. That's kind of the way that um, English people think. Each of the writers of the scriptures has a different style. Uh, the Apostle Paul is a thinker. He is an academic. He loves a cunning rhetorical device. He loves to be able to, to write something, and it, it's got this catchy tune to it, you know. And, and, and he even, Paul seems to have even composed a couple of hymns that appear in his, in, in his writings. In the book of Philippians, what we read this morning is one of Paul's hymns. Um, and so, so Paul is this really erudite, intellectual writer, and he really engages at a very, very much like a postgraduate level. It's one of the reasons why when you read a translation, um, one of the reasons I don't use certain translations of the Bible is they try to simplify Paul. Paul is not simple. Paul, Paul writes like he's a college professor. That's the way that Paul writes. Um, and it needs to be reflected in the translation. Then you get uh, the Apostle John, and John is the poet. If Paul is the professor, John is the dancer. Everything about John's writing is beautiful, and he's got these ideas he revisits in water and light and birth, and it's this beautiful stuff. And not surprisingly, John is Peter's youngest cousin. So he must have irritated Peter to no end. Because Peter is a blunt instrument. Peter writes, the Greek that Peter writes is like an, an old, don't take, don't, I hope you guys will understand what I'm talking about. It is, it is written like an, an old man hunting and pecking on a typewriter and pounding the points in. All right, now those of you that have typed on a typewriter, you know the difference between somebody who can type and someone who types. All right, that's how, that's how Peter writes. Peter has these moments of brilliance, um, and, and I personally, I can't prove this, but I think he borrows them from, Pete, from Paul and John, both of whom he knew. 
Um, in fact, he and John spend a lot of time together in the book of Acts. And you just, you kind of get this idea that John is walking along and he says something about the way that Jesus talked or there's something he taught and Peter goes, oh, that's really good. I am going to use that later. And, and so, so Paul literally, Peter's, Peter's letter, letters are literally like pound, pound, pound. And then this beautiful poetic idea that doesn't fit. Because he probably got it from John, and he went, this is going to fit perfect, this will be great. And, of course, the Holy Spirit is inspiring this, and I think one of the great things about the way the Holy Spirit works in the New Testament is all these guys' character and personality and individuality comes out. They say essentially the same thing, but the church was just this beautifully diverse collection of, of weird guys. Um, and, and, and the reality is it hasn't changed. We're still this collection of people that, that we, we have our rough edges and we have our bumps and our bruises. <clears throat> but the Apostle Peter, living in Rome, this blunt instrument, this Galilean fisherman so far away from home, something is going on with the Christians in what is today modern Turkey. And he takes up a pen to write them uh, two letters, and they're they're separated by a little bit of time. We don't know how long it was between First and Second Peter, but he takes up a pen to write them a letter, and he and he sits down. And the amazing thing is that Peter's journey has brought him to a point that when he writes this letter, as rough and 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 as as curmudgeon-y as he is, he writes this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage the church. And in the process, he reflects upon how he has come to see Christ and how he has come to see the church. And so we want to take a look at that letter for the next few weeks. I don't know how long we're going to be in these letters. It really kind of depends um, how well Peter and I get along. Um, but, uh, but we want to take a look for just a few, a, few, uh, a few weeks. We want to look at his life and what he has done and what he's accomplished. So I want to begin with a word of prayer. And then we'll dive into this. Heavenly Father, as we, we once again look to your word, and as we look to we look to a guy that you picked, you picked to be a, a special friend to your son, that you picked to be one of your apostles, one of the one of the voices of the Holy Spirit as the church was formed. <clears throat> Lord, help us to to see him in three dimensions, to understand. Um, what you were doing in him and through him so we can understand what you are doing in us and through us. We pray that we would hear Peter's voice and, and through his voice we would hear your spirit. And in hearing your spirit, we would hear your heart as it beats for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. 1 Peter in chapter 1, and uh, if you, you don't have a Bible, uh, there were Bibles in the back table. One of the ushers would be glad to get one to you. Page number is printed in the bulletin, but I just want to look at, at I want to begin with Peter here. Now, just, just so you get this, all right? So what is Peter's name? Simon. Simon. That's what his mommy called him. All right? Simon, get over here. Stop beating on Andrew. Right? Um, but he takes the name that Jesus gave him, and it becomes his identity. And so he begins the letter, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'm going to get into, we're going to keep going, but but I want you to see one of the reasons that the study of Peter came kind of comes after our study of Ezra and Nehemiah um, is that line there, to the elect exiles of the, the dispersion. Um, Peter is pulling an idea from the Old Testament. When the people of Israel had sinned and God had punished them around the year 600 B.C., and they had been sent into exile, they had been spread out among the nations, um, as Ezekiel phrases it, um, they were spread out to be brought together. And these, the church in this region of what is today Turkey and, and some of eastern Greece and a little bit of Armenia, um, the church has been, it's, it's under some kind of pressure that has spread them. They're under some kind of difficulty and they've been spread out. They've been broken up. Now we know historically what was going on was that the, the, the Christians were having trouble explaining who they were to everybody. Because the Jews were walking around going, they're not ours. And the Gentiles are walking around going, not ours. And the Romans are going, so how do we tax you? Because that's all they care about. All they care about is whether they're going to tax them the way the Jews were taxed, which was an annual tax, um, or you're going to be taxed according to the way that Romans were taxed, which it, there were all kinds of excises and tolls and, and, and things like that. How do we treat you? Do we treat you as, uh, as, as non-citizens of the empire and non-Jews, because Jews have certain protections, or do we treat you as Jews? What are you? And the Christians were kind of saying, well, we're, we're, we are what the Jews should be, and the Jews are going, no, they're not. <laughs> and they're saying, well, we are the, you know, we're the true Jews. And, and, but then there are, there are Gentiles in the church, and they're saying, well, we're not Jews. You know, Paul said we're not Jews. We're, we're, you know, we're something else. And so the Christians are um, in a, a persecution that results from the confusion of the authorities over them. The, it's not that people are intentionally trying to make Christians' lives miserable yet. They will eventually. But for the moment, they're just... They're, they're uncategorized. They're persona non grata. Nobody really knows what to do with them. And so the Romans, in fact, we, we have this great letter that was written a little bit later. Um, we have this great letter from one of the governors in Asia Minor saying, um, saying, saying basically, hey, I've got a bunch of Christians that the Jews turned over to me, and I don't know what to do with them. He writes a letter to the emperor, and he says, I don't know what to do with them. Should I kill them? And, they, and I mean... What kind of society do you live in that that's how you start a letter? <laughs> so we're not sure what to do with these people. Should we just go ahead and kill them? Would that be the easiest way to do this? We'd fix, fix this problem. And the emperor writes back to him and says, well, if they haven't broken the law, are they willing to swear allegiance? He has a bunch of questions. Um, and they kind of go back and forth on this conversation. Um, and so, so 
people are really struggling with what to do with these guys. They just don't really don't know what to do with them. And so the Christians are they're living in a very difficult time. Jews are chasing them out of their homes. Jesus had prophesied to the Christians that when they followed him, they were going to be thrown out of their synagogues, and that's what's being what's happening. They're losing their connections to their family. They're being disowned. They're they're losing their trade because uh, so much of, of what happens in the empire has to do with your relationships. Jews trade a certain way. Gentiles trade a certain way. You have a certain market that you worked with. Then now, if that market is gone, what do you do? How do you make a living? How do you provide for your family? There's a lot going on with these folks. We don't know whether they're dispersed because we don't know whether they're spread out because they're just trying to find where where should they live, or if they're they're spread out because people are legitimately persecuting them and hunting them down. We just don't know what's happening with them. It doesn't matter which side I stand on. If I move the microphone to this side of my, my face so that the wind stops, guess which way the wind will come from? <laughs> so I apologize for the sound that it makes it sound like I'm on a sailboat while I'm preaching, which is appropriate with the, the Apostle Peter. Anyway, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy... He has caused us to be born again. Now here's a great word he steals from John. All right, This idea of being born again. This is one of John's ideas. Um, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's an idea that he steals from the Apostle Paul. All right, um, Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you get what he's writing to them. He's, as he's writing to them, he's saying, look guys, I know what's going on right now. I know the life that, that you're having to live. You, you're, you're chosen and now you're exiled and you're spread all over and you're under a lot of stress. I understand that and God understands that. And he, he uses these, these words, um, you know, and I'm not going to get into the, the way he throws, he, he throws Paul in there and it's like he quotes him um, like word for word and it doesn't fit grammatically. But anyway, he says, um, he says to them, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, you're going through a difficult time. You're going through a hard time. There's a struggle that's going on. Life isn't easy, and yet you are being guarded. Now, the way that that is translated, there are, there are a couple of ways that you can uh, guard something. Um, what does a prison guard, what is a prison guard's job? What is a prison guard's job? To guard what is in from getting out. All right, that's that's what a prison guard does. And sometimes when we think of the word guard, that's the way we think. We think something is in, and we're preventing it from getting out. Did you guys see the Boston Public Library lost a couple of priceless pieces of art, and they found them in a filing cabinet? Mm -hmm. Now, how many of you actually think whoever had them went, you know, be a really great way to put these back? Let's put them in a filing cabinet. Um, I, I've never seen a filing cabinet, by the way, big enough to fit yeah. a, a painting, but anyway. Um, so so a, the idea of a museum guard, right? A museum guard, his job is to make sure that the paintings and sculptures that are inside the museum don't get outside the museum. All right? That's what his job is. 
And a prison guard's job is to make sure that prisoners stay inside the prison. But that's not the word that's being used here. This word is actually, it's a military term, and it's the idea of somebody guarding a, a city. Now, what when you're guarding a city, what are you trying to do? You're trying to keep the people that are outside the city from getting inside the city. All right, so it's, a, it's the opposite kind of guarding. Now, he would have been very, very familiar with this because this is what Roman guards did. This is what Roman legions did. The Roman society was a free society. You were basically allowed to do anything you wanted to do in Roman society as long as you didn't hurt somebody else. That was the way they worked. That was the way their government worked. I mean, basically, as long as you didn't cross the law, you could do anything. All right? Especially during the Republic. It was basically, you know, whatever you want to do. You want to, you know, marry your pets? That's fine. All right? That, that, just don't, don't bother your neighbors. That was, that was the way Roman law was. So Roman soldiers' jobs were to protect the rights of those that were under their protection. They, they, they stood at the edge of the empire, they stood at the outside of a city, and their job was to protect what was inside from what was outside. And so the, the Apostle Peter, he says, you are guarded by God. And what is he saying when he uses that term? He says, you know, even though you're in difficulty, and even though you're in struggle, and you're, you're in challenge, and you're facing all of this opposition, um, you are guarded. There is an active defense and there's a very real difference between an active defense, and I need a volunteer that's an adult. Sorry, Ashley. I need an adult. Trish, come on up. This is not going to work because Trish is a martial artist, so... Alright, so Trish, come over here where we've got some space. So we're going to talk about the difference between active defense and passive defense. So I want you to pretend like you've never had somebody take a swing at you before. Alright? And... As somebody punches you, if you're an average everyday person, what do you do to defend yourself when somebody tries to punch you? Right. So if I swing at you, right? Right. Now how many of you think how many of you think that the average person is actually gonna duck? Ryan, what do you think they're gonna do? Back away. Back away and do this, right? Yeah. Hands are gonna come to the face and you're gonna go, Don't hit me! That's that's a passive defense. Right? This is so the average person, somebody swings at them and they do. Oh, don't hit me! All right, now, since I know that you can do this. <laughs> so now I want you to take an active defense okay. to this. So when I swing at you, I want you to defend yourself. Okay. So call up all of your training. I'll take you to the ground. What? Careful, active. Nicole says, "I like his face the way it is." So, so now, all right. So now, Trish is going to take an active defense as I come at her and as I punch at her. All right. Wow. You see the difference between a passive defense and an active defense? All right. Not only was she defending herself because she parried that shot, she set herself up to strike as well. When God defends us. God's defense for you is not. Thanks, Trish. Yep. Um, we tend to think we tend to think that 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 the way that God takes care of us, all right, is uh, it, the way that God takes care of us is the way that we instinctively respond, right? 
So we say, oh, I'm having a financial difficulty. I'm having a financial problem. So, dear God, just get me through this. Just, just give me a little bit of a passive force field of some kind. But God protects us, not just in a passive way, but in an active way. Now, he doesn't go out of his way. God does not go out of his way to aggressively attack people you don't like. All right? But God will protect you in a hostile world. Now, his protection does not always look like what we might think it would look like. Now, I'll be honest, I had absolutely no idea what Trish was going to do. She could have done anything. She could have, I, I know in her head she was like, can I bring a reverse crescent kick around, smack him in the back of the head. All right. Um, but, but the reality is, she did what needed to be done to neutralize the situation, active defense. She didn't hurt me. All right. Um, she, she did punch me. All right. So you guys are aware of that. But I was ready to be punched. Um, please do not go around punching other people. All right. Um, but, but the idea is that God is guarding them. Now, why do you think that they needed to hear that? Why do you think that they needed to hear that God was actively guarding them? Because as they go through their lives, they're seeing a lot of bad things happen. And sometimes we just need the simple assurance that God has not forgotten you. Now think for a second about the Apostle Paul Peter and why he might want, that might be the first thing that comes to his mind when people are faced difficulty. And, and I think there's a real, very real reason. The Apostle, the Apostle Peter did what during Jesus' trial? Denied, he denied him. Right? He denied him. And if you write, read the account of that in the Gospel of Mark, you'll see Peter's perspective on it. Um, but when, when, Peter, when Peter denies Christ, all right, there is this moment in the Gospel of John, who is Peter's younger cousin, right, and the guy that Peter hung out with, Right, after Jesus was resurrected, and he tells the story of Jesus restoring Peter. And Jesus' attitude toward Peter is, you don't actually think I ever bailed on you. That's how Jesus takes it with Peter. Peter, I haven't forgotten about you. Peter, I didn't abandon you. Peter, I didn't leave you. for. I didn't just say, ah, oh, forget that, Peter's toast. I was always protecting you, but I had to allow, Jesus had to allow Peter to stumble around and fumble around within the barrier of his protection. He had to let Peter face some opposition and some challenges, but he was always protecting him. He had never abandoned him. He was always guarding him. And so here are this group of people in Asia Minor who are dealing with all of these difficulties and challenges, and, and all he says to them, he says, he says don't, don't, just don't forget, you're guarded. You're protected. But I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I camp there a little longer than I wanted to. I want to actually get down a little bit a little bit lower. In this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, <clears throat> borrows John's word, revelation, right? But but he is he is talking about himself. This is something he's experienced. 
He went through difficulty. He went through struggles. He went through challenges. Not only did he face them in Jesus' trial, but there's actually this moment in Peter's life where, where God calls him to do something he's not supposed to do, which is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And God actually, he falls asleep on the roof, because if you're sleeping on the roof, obviously that's what you, you, you know, you're going to have a weird dream. And, and Jesus appears to him and gives him this dream. And, uh, and he says to Peter, he shows him all this food, and he says, eat this food. And Peter says, I can't. I'm a Jew. If I eat it, I break the law. Jesus does it to him three times. Peter needs people to do things three times. Until Peter finally realizes what Jesus is trying to teach him. And then he goes to this Gentile's house. He walks through the door, and he says to the the very first thing he says is, you guys know I'm not supposed to be here, so what do you want? That's what he said. He's like, God wants me to be here, so tell me what you want. And they say, we, you know, we want to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, okay, great. God is constantly testing and trying and refining Peter through his life. Jesus is always working on him. And Peter sees in the struggles and the difficulties that the people are facing, he says, I know where you've been. I know what it's like to be challenged, to struggle, to, to face opposition. I know what it's like to, to be yelled at. He'd been thrown in jail repeatedly in the book of Acts. He knows what it's like to be in prison. He knows what it's like to feel the, the dark of, of, of desertion and to have Jesus call him back and Jesus direct him and, and, and lead him. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, past tense, you love him, present tense. Though you do not now see him, present tense, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Present tense. Present tense, present tense, present tense. <coughs> One of the things that Peter loves about these people he's writing is that they're living their faith out in the present tense. Their faith is not in the past tense. Their faith is not in the future tense. It's in the present tense. They know that there are things that God has done in their life in the past, but they're not dwelling on that because they're dealing with what's going on at the moment. And they know that there is something coming in the end times and at the end of life and all that stuff, but they're not focused on that. They're focused on what's happening right now, at this moment. How can my faith be vibrant and alive in this moment? Facing the difficulties and, and, and the struggles and the imprisonment and the persecution and everything that's going on in their lives. How can our faith be lived out in this moment? And this is what he's saying to me. He says, though you did not see him, though you have not seen him, Past tense, though, though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you weren't there with me at the beginning, even though the past is the past, in the presence your love is for Christ. And even though, um, and even though you do not see him, even though right now you don't have what you will have in the future, you believe in him. See, one of the, the, the thing that he's going to grab onto for them is not, oh, it'll work out eventually. That's not what he grabs onto. And he doesn't grab onto, well, your experience teaches you. 
what he grabs onto is you you love him now. You believe in him now. And he calls his these these Christians to recognize the beauty and glory of what God is doing even in the moment of struggle. Let me finish the sentence. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. An ongoing process, by the way. The salvation of your souls. Now, he will, he will get into how difficult it is to understand what they have in that moment. But I, I want to just kind of go from that and just drop this, and I'll, I'll be done. We sometimes live our lives either in the glory of the past or in expectation of the future and we forget to have our faith in the present. We forget to believe that God can do something now. And isn't that true when we go through difficulty? We, we, we have to work to understand that God can do something in this moment. Because we can look at the back and we can go, oh, I remember all the great things. I mean, Jesus, he saved my soul and, and he made me whole. And how's that song go? Um, but anyway, uh, he, we get this long, we get, uh, you know, I can see all the stuff that God has done. Or we can sit there and go, man, I can't wait to get to heaven. I can't wait to be in the presence of the Lord. And, and oh, what will be great. No more struggles, no more difficulties and all these things. But our faith is not about the past or the present. Our faith is, about the, our faith is not about the past or the future. It's about the present. It's about how we live at this moment, in this moment. It's, it's not, it's not um, you know, oh, wasn't it great we had that moment way back when, when things were perfect. <coughs> this moment now is the perfect moment for our faith to be alive and vibrant and real. And, and oh, if I, you know, eventually I will learn to have the right words to say, or I will learn to have the, I will get everything lined up, and when that happens, won't that be great? No, right now, at this moment, What's the condition of your faith? And the reason that I, I bring that up is, if these people had not been living their faith out, if it had not been a vibrant, real hub about which their lives exist, then when that, that exile and that dispersion and those difficulties came, they were not going to suddenly find faith. <clears throat> faith doesn't suddenly show up when you have a hard time. It doesn't work like it does in the movies. You know, oh Lord, remember me? You know, we haven't talked in a while. You know, and then Jesus does something miraculous. That's not how it works. Our faith has to be in the present. It has to be in this moment. It has to be as real now. It needs to be as real now as it is at any other moment in our lives. Now, it may not be full of all kinds of crazy activity. I mean, I've seen people got saved... The beginning of their faith journey was wild, you know. I mean, my, my dad was stoned out of his mind when he came to Christ. Um, you know, and it's like, and I'm like, are you sure Jesus didn't actually appear to you? You know, um, he was, he was, my dad was a complete and utter drug addict. Um, and, uh, and when he came to Christ, he never touched it again. 
You know, and it's this revolutionary story, and it's this amazing story, and all oh, this is incredible, and, and how this happens, and all. And we look back, but, but in this moment, is my faith as real now as it was at those high points? Am I at least longing to have that real faith that, that, that's going to sustain me, not just in the good times, but in the bad times? Or am I waiting for faith to fall on me? Am I waiting for God to suddenly change my urges so that I remember to read the Bible or I remember to pray? You know, well, God's supernatural. He will. It, God guides and chooses. So, so if I wake up in the morning and I don't feel like reading the Bible, I must not be elect to read the Bible, predestined to read the Bible this morning. No, that's not how this works. My faith has to be real, and, and it takes work and effort to make that faith central to my life because there's all kinds of waves crashing against me. There's all kinds of struggles, and, and, and we live in a hostile world, and make no mistake about it. We live in a world that is hostile to your faith. You say, well, that sounds, it sounds so judgmental. Look, it's just a reality. It is just a reality. The world does, the, the world, and by the world, I don't mean individual people. I mean that there is some kind of system out there that is governed by the prince of the powers of the air, a.k.a. Satan, a.k.a. the devil, who wants to get you, a believer, to compromise your faith. He wants you to water down and back away and not stand and just kind of blend in. There are waves crashing against us every day. And we saw this happen. And I, am, I, I swear to you I'm not going to get into this. But we saw this um, this week. All right? And you all know the controversy that erupted this week about a former Olympic swimmer. Or a, a runner. That shows how much I pay attention to the Olympics. Um, and everybody and their brother, my Facebook feed. Everybody, you know, stuff is going on crazy. And all my pastor friends are losing their minds. <laughs> you know what I've said about it? Absolutely nothing. If people don't know what my views on something like that are now, there's no point in me posting it on Facebook. I'm just going to continue to honor Christ. I want my faith to be vibrant, and I don't want my faith swayed by public opinion. I refuse to be the Roger Goodell of faith. Football fans, you know what I'm talking about. I refuse to sit around and wait to find out what people think about me before I make a decision. This is just who I am. I'm going to follow Christ. And, and I'm not going to disrespect or slam or, or, or beat on other people, but I'm not going to compromise who I am. And, and that should be our creed. I'm not going to compromise on Christ. I'm going to live my faith in a real vibrant way. Every morning, I'm going to start my morning. I'm going to wake up in the morning and I'm going to say, God, I want a crazy, imperfect, broken faith like Peter. Because as absolutely terrible a disciple he was, he was an awful disciple, but he was an amazing apostle. He was an amazing... He, 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 he betrayed his best friend. Does it get worse than that? And yet he became God's man. His faith continued to grow. And God, if I can just have a modicum 
of the faith of the Apostle Peter. In all my struggles and difficulties and challenges and failures, if I can just, if I can lock in on that, man, I'm going to live my faith in the now. I'm going to embrace my mistakes and my imperfections and I'm going to barrel ahead. I think sometimes we want to relegate our faith to the past or the future because it's convenient in our current context. Well, your faith is a personal thing. Don't bring it up. Wait, what? Think about the logic, the, the lack of logic of saying something you believe strongly you should never bring up. I mean, we are under so much that the air patterns have started, so that's a signal for me to finish um, live our faith in the present, in the moment. We will constantly need to renew it. That's why we cycle through things like the Lord's table. That's why we, we come together every week. We, we constantly need to renew what God is doing. But live your faith in this moment. Whatever moment it is, with it, all the imperfection that you have and all the imperfection of that moment, live your faith. Let's, uh, let's have a word Father, we, we ask that you would make us aware of your, your ever-present watching. And that as we, as we go through life, Lord, we might hear the Apostle Peter in our heads. And we might ask ourselves of this, this thing, you know, even though we don't see, even though we, we have the future. But what are we doing now? What does my faith look like in this moment? What pressures are exerting upon me that I need to be aware of? Lord, you are our God. Christ, you are our Savior. Spirit, you are our life. We are just people. <clears throat> Take us from this place to be your church. Lord, as we continue our worship, and as we give ourselves and our hearts to you, in Jesus' name.